Holy Father, may we catch a glimpse of your boundless love for us. That it might root itself deep in our being. We ask this through Christ. Amen. A number of years ago, a Catholic priest was asked what the most common problem he heard in the confessional. What is it that people tend to talk about in the confessional? What's the problem that keeps arising as he listens to confessions? And he said, with hardly any hesitation, that's easy. God. He said, it keeps coming back to our view of God. So everyone who comes in and is expressing their struggles and their concerns and their burdens, it, it, the root of their issue is their view of God. When I read that, I thought about that famous quote from A.W. Tozer, who said, what I think about God is the most important thing about me. What I think about God is the most important thing about me. Not too long ago, I read something from C.S. Lewis, and he said, perhaps the most important thing is not how I think about God, but how God thinks about me. And as I pondered what Tozer said and what Lewis said, I think they're saying the same thing, because in essence, what is our view of God other than what we think God thinks about us? Who is this God that so many people talk about? Who is this God that the scriptures speak of? And what does he think? What does he feel? What's his mindset, his perspective about me as a human being? And I would suspect that the heart of all of our struggles is our view of who God thinks we are. And at the heart of who God thinks we are is our view of prayer. Because our view of prayer is going to be shaped by what we think God thinks about us when we pray. I think this is part of what Jesus is getting at in this passage from Matthew 6 that we read a few moments ago. It's a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount begins uh, in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And then he moves into uh, more uh, the, the, the dynamics of our lives and some different perspectives about how we tend to think of them. And then we come to chapter 6, and he talks a bit about the spiritual disciplines. He begins with, with giving, and he says, this is how you should give. And then he gets to the end of it, and he talks about fasting, and in the middle... He talks about prayer. It's always been interesting to me that Jesus begins that section by saying, and when you pray, there is an assumption that Jesus makes that people are going to pray. I'm convinced that everyone prays. Even people who don't believe in any kind of God, in some way or another, pray. We may not acknowledge it, and it may not be overt, but there are thoughts in our minds about wanting something from someone outside of us. 
And Jesus says, I know you're going to pray. The problem is you have a skewed view of prayer. And he proceeds to talk to them about how to fix that. I've been pondering Jesus' words, and it made me think of a couple of things. I suspect that most of you, like me, have mementos in your house of your, some of your accomplishments or, or things that you have achieved. We put them, you know, in our homes, maybe in your dorm room, your apartment. I brought a few with me this morning. This is a little plaque that just says Showtime 1976. I think it was about five years old then. Um, and Best Solo, Wes Oden. Actually, I was in high school. And our, our high school choir was, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 of us. And, and it was probably what our high school was known for more than anyone else, anything else. And we would travel around southern Indiana singing at schools and events and things. And every year we had a concert in the Civic Auditorium in Evansville. And 1,500 people would show up and buy tickets to hear us. I mean, the director of the choir was just phenomenal. And it was a privilege to be a part of that. And then in the spring, we had this, this showtime, they called it, where everyone got to do any kind of performance that they wanted to do. And so I sang. And... Later on, when we had our picnic together, he gave out awards, and I won Best Solo. Now, in case you're wondering, I sang Barry Manilow's song, Mandy. <laughs> I remember all my life raining down as cold as ice. I mean, I, I got it all in my head even still, right? Now, remember, it was the 70s, right? So, I mean, it was popular, though I have to admit, I still like Barry Manilow. But I hope that doesn't make you think less of me. But... No, that's, that's one of my mementos. I have another one, a, a little, another plaque. This one I got just a couple of months ago. Uh, Andrew and I went down to Wellsville, and we played in the Wellsville Balloon Rally Doubles Tournament, and we were the men's champions. And that was pretty cool, to be able to play with Andrew and, and to win together. And then I brought this golf ball and the scorecard. And this is from July 6, 2014. Standing at, on the second hole of the Woodland Hills Golf Course just outside of Nunday, and uh, this 120-yard hole, standing on the tee, took an 8-iron. I've hardly ever hit the ball straight in my life, and that time I happened to hit it straight, and it landed on the front of the green, and it rolled right into the cup. Hole in one. I mean, John and Andrew are both better golfers than me. They never hit a hole in one. My brother-in-law is a really good golfer, and he's never hit a hole in one. I can tell you with the sincerest of my heart, pure luck. Pure luck. That's all I can say. Pure luck. You would think the rest of that round went well, but I got the scorecard. It did not go well after that point. I don't think that was even my best total ever. We have these mementos in our houses of things that remind us of accomplishments and things that we've, we've done. But we also have tools in our house. For some of you, it's things that look like this. You have workshop full of tools that you have in your place of things that so you can make things and repair things and, and fix things and create things. And, and you're really good at that and you love doing it and you have these tools. And maybe you, for your tools, and maybe it's more like garden clippers. Maybe it's your rose bush or your vegetable garden or whatever you do outside around your house. And, and that's, that's what you use your tools for. Maybe for some of you, it's a keyboard. And you write, and you create things on the computer, and you do a variety of things, but you have these tools that are important to you, and they mean something to you, and they make you feel useful. And here's the thing that struck me about both mementos and tools. I think far too often we see prayer like mementos and tools. God, look what I've accomplished. 
Now you'll hear me. God, look how useful I am. Now you'll hear me. And there's this innate sense in us that we have value and worth to God that will affect our prayers because we've accomplished something significant or because we are particularly useful to God and to the kingdom. So Jesus says to them, look, when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees who stand on the street corner and show people how great they are. And don't be like the pagans who babble with lots of words, thinking, look how useful I can be. Look how much I can do. Look how awesome my words are. Jesus says, don't be like that. Because Jesus, God does not see us as mementos or tools. He does not think of us based on what we've accomplished or how useful we are. And it doesn't change our prayers at all. If we can come to God and say and prove to him, I am so useful. I have accomplished so much for you. So therefore, you ought to hear me more, pay attention to me more. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. Because prayer is not ultimately about us. Maybe the best image for what prayer is, is not tools or mementos. Maybe it's those cherished photographs that we have. The pictures that we have of people who are most important to us, our family, our friends. The pictures that we put up on the wall, the picture that we put on our desks, the pictures that we put in our rooms of people who are important to us. Why do we put those pictures up? Because they're cherished people to us. Why is it when we buy a new picture frame, we don't just leave the picture in there that comes with it of people we don't know? Why do we change it? Because we want to put pictures in there of people we do know. People that are important to us. People who we cherish. And people who cherish us. And I think Jesus is saying to us, it's not about your accomplishments. It's not about your usefulness. It's not about mementos or tools. It's about being cherished children of God. It's about relationship with God. That is the core, the essence of prayer, out of which all the ways in which we pray flow. Matthew 6, 8, Jesus says, look... You don't even need to, you don't need to babble on because your father already knows what you need before you ask him. How does the father know that? Because he knows us. Because there is a relationship. It's not about impressing him. It's about being connected to him. It's in relationship. Craig Barnes, who's now the president of Princeton Seminary says that when he was a student at Princeton, he had a professor that would say to the, his, when the classes often, he said, look, you ought to wake up every morning and give thanks to God that you are unnecessary. They all look at each other and think, oh, wait a second, that can't be right. I mean, what's my value, my worth if I'm not necessary? We all know that we aren't Expendable that we, you know, we we that we can never that would never be replaced. I mean, we all know that. We all know we're expendable in some way. We all know that at some point in time, we're going to disappear from the scene, and someone else is going to come and take our place. That's just life. But in the midst of that, surely we're necessary. 
And he said the professor would look at them and answer and, at their questions and say to them, no, 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 you, you missed it. You're too important to be necessary. You deserve to be loved. And I've been pondering that for years. And I think, when I think about it, something that's necessary isn't necessarily something we love. It's just something we need until we don't need it. The tools that we have are great. But tools have a way of wearing out and breaking. Sometimes we're happy about that because it gives us a reason to explain to someone else we need better tools. I need an up I need a I need a better I need something more advanced. I need to yes, I need to spend that money on those tools because look, that's broken. And I need to be faster and better and do more things. But we don't keep broken tools, we don't keep them on our shelves and look at them and say, Oh, they're such cherished things to me. And even mementos. That plaque I had from when I was in high school, I had to go down to the basement and dig through boxes to find it. I mean, these things wear out. These things go away. But relationships, that's something different. And God, as prayer as relationship has been God's intent from the very beginning. Genesis 3 says, Adam and Eve, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That's an interesting thing, that word God walking with people. Because it's often repeated in the Old Testament particularly. God walked with Noah. And God walked with Abraham. And God walked with Enoch. And God walked with Moses. And God walked with Joshua. And God walked with David. There was this relationship with them. That in many ways, if you want to define prayer to one thing, it is relationship, walking with God, spending time with God. And God didn't create this relationship idea after human beings sinned. That wasn't because human beings sinned that God said, well, I guess we're going to have to start praying. That was his plan from the beginning. That was built into creation from the beginning. And in fact, it's only when human beings sin that they run away from God when he wants to walk with them. It's our sin that pushes us away from relationships, not toward it. It's always been God's intent. I think that's what G- why Jesus says, here's how you don't pray, but here's how you do pray. You go in your closet and you spend time with your father. And here's how you pray. And what does he say? He gives us the Lord's Prayer. And what's the first two words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Relationship. We could have said, God of all creation, Lord of the universe, sovereign God. All titles for God that we find in Scripture, all appropriate, all important. But when Jesus wants to boil down, this is how you pray, he begins with our Father. Relationship. Because at its heart, that's what prayer is. Relationship. I also find interesting in this prayer that there are six petitions. And during our prayer vigil this year, we're going to be focusing on the Lord's Prayer and 
and the fatherhood of God, but also these petitions. But I'm especially intrigued by the second petition because there's something in me that says that all the others are sort of formed around that. And the second petition is, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The first petition is, hallowed be your name. And why do we pray that? Why is that our petition? Why is that our desire that God's name would be hallowed? Because we know in God's kingdom, he is holy and perfect and good and beautiful. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that because in God's kingdom, where his will is done, there is justice and truth and righteousness and beauty. Give us this day our daily bread. In the kingdom of God, we can trust that God will take care of our needs. The needs right in front of us and the needs down the road. He is reliable. And what's the attitude of the kingdom? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. In God's kingdom, his people embrace forgiveness. The forgiveness God gives us, the forgiveness we offer others. And in God's kingdom, we find strength and power to withstand the attacks and the temptations of the evil one. To pray your kingdom come is in essence to enter into partnership with God as he accomplishes his kingdom purposes. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Every time we pray that, we are saying, God, we want to be partners with you in accomplishing what you want to do. It's phenomenal to me that in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, as partners, as God's partners... I think you could ponder that phrase, those three words, to the end of your life and never fully get to the end of it. As God's partners. As the Almighty One's partners. As the creator of everything's partners. It's a phenomenal thought to ponder that God calls us, wants us to be partners with Him. And prayer is a huge part of that. As we enter into relationship with him, he says, now this isn't just about relationship. It's about relational partnership. I want to be a part of my kingdom purposes and accomplishing my purposes on the earth. And so I'm going to, I'm going to use your gifts and I'm going to help you accomplish things. We're going to create some mementos, and, 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 I'm going to, and I'm going to use you as a tool. But that's not the essence of who you are. That comes out of who you are as my beloved children. I wonder if that isn't what, what God means when he says to Moses in Exodus 19. He says, tell the people, you are my cherished treasures of all the peoples on earth, and you're going to be king, a kingdom of priests to serve with me. This royal place of partnership. Notice that in Matthew 6, Jesus says, if you act like prayer is primarily mementos or tools, if you act like it's all about you, then you will get a reward. You'll get get 
feedback from that. And, and you'll get some stuff from that. But it will be very short-lived. Because who remembers most of the things that have taken place in the world? But if you see prayer as relationship, partnership, if you join with me in this venture, if you seek my heart and let me influence your heart, then what you're going to experience is eternal partnership and eternal things of the kingdom, and it will be phenomenal. It'll be in partnership with God. So where does this idea of partnership come from? Where does Paul get this idea that we're God's partners? I wonder if it isn't rooted in our understanding of the Trinity. I think sometimes when I, when I think of the Trinity through my life, it's, it's been very static. You know, it's almost like there's three, three old men sitting around a table in a boardroom, sort of making checklists and figuring out plans and, and doing their own thing. You know, you stay in your lane, I'll stay in my lane. And, you know, we don't really do that much, have much to do with each other. We just sort of do our own thing. And, and it's all about business. But when you read the scriptures and when you read the, the words of the church fathers, what you find is that their understanding of the Trinity is not static but dynamic. It's relational. I guess why Dennis Kinlaw says that the most important thing that we know about God, the most important thing about God, is not his sovereignty, as important as that is and as true as that is. It's his love. Because before God created anything, there was no nothing about sovereignty. There was nothing to be sovereign over until he creates something to be sovereign over. But love, that's the dynamic that holds the Trinity together throughout all of eternity. Their love for each other. And, it, and, and I think I've missed that for most of my life. And maybe when God calls us into partnership, what he's really doing is says, he's saying to us, I want you to mirror the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. I want that kind of relationship with you. Maybe that's what part of what it means to be created in the image of God. To be relational with God. I've been trying to think of, of how to think about that and talk about that. And, and I know this is going to sound strange, but I, I think maybe the, the most apt metaphor for that is dancing. Now, I said that in a Wesleyan church. I said that about dancing. Now, I wrote a couple of weeks ago in, our, in the newsletter that when I, when I was a child, you know, my, I would love to dance around the house uh, singing to Mahiga Jackson. God put a rainbow in the sky. If you haven't, so a few people wrote me and said, I looked that song up. Wow, I couldn't, I see why you wanted to dance. And it is, it's phenomenal. This, uh, this great talent that God gave her to sing gospel music. But, but as I got older, dancing wasn't as encouraged. I'll put it that way. Uh, you know, it was taboo. And I, and I understand as an adult now kind of why that was the case. Because some dancing leads to inappropriate things. And, and that was always the fear. And I get that. But I think what we've missed is how often Scripture talks about dancing. In a positive light. It's a way of worshiping God. Now, I like to watch people dance. 
You know, I'm not very good at it. But I like watching people, particularly people who know what they're doing. And I especially love ballroom dancing. And particularly, I love waltzing. I love to watch people waltz together. There is a gracefulness and a beauty to that with people who know what they're doing. And the thing about dancing is there's intimacy to that, which is what scares us a little bit. And there is, and there is a sense of, of oneness in dancing. When people who know what they're doing... Yeah, one person's leading, one people, person's following. But if they're good and they've been dancing together for a while and, and they understand each other, you can hardly tell who's leading and who's following because they just flow as one across the floor. And there is such a beauty to that and a joy in that. Both You can see it as they dance and, and you feel it as you watch. And I know this may sound strange, but there are some church fathers that talk about this, that there is a sense in which the Trinity is involved in this eternal kind of dance. Of of moving together with each other as they interact, not only with each other, but with all that God has created. In this dynamic kind of relationship that is descriptive of people who love each other. And maybe God is calling us into the dance. And he's saying, look, I want more than a checklist from you. We'll get to that. I want more than than all of the things that you want to say to me. What I want at the heart of this whole idea of prayer is this kind of relationship. We're so intimate with each other and connected to each other that ultimately we become one with each other. And it comes out in this partnership of my kingdom. It's a phenomenal thing to ponder that the Almighty God would say, I want you to join me. In his book, Prayer, Philip Yancey tells the story of his pastor who one day was, was putting some stone steps into the back of the house. These stones were huge, 100, 200-pound stones that he was moving with his strength and with some tools that he had gotten. And as he was in the middle of that project, his four- or five-year-old daughter came out, and she watched him a minute. And he said, Daddy, I want to help. And he said, um... Okay, listen, why don't you sing for me while I'm working so it'll encourage me to keep working better? And she looked at him as only a child can do and said, no, daddy, I want to help. Have you ever been around a child who really wants to help you? You know what I'm talking about. And he's thinking, how in the world could she possibly help me? Well, he finally figured out a way to not harm her, but to let her, she put her hands on the stones while he pushed them into place. And he said later, he said, you know, I have to tell you, he said, it took me a whole lot longer to do that project because of her help. And it was a lot more stressful because she was there and I was afraid of her getting hurt. He said, it made the project much more difficult for me. And then he said, until I went to dinner that night and I heard my little girl announce to the table, Mama, me and Daddy... Put in new steps today. 
And he said, in that moment, I got just a little bit of a glimpse of God's heart for me. Maybe all I'm doing is putting my hands on stones and God's doing the one who's moving them. But God calls that partnership. Relationship. And that's the heart of prayer. It's not so much mementos or tools. It's those cherished images of people we love. I'd like for us just to take a moment of of contemplation. Maybe to think about the place where you feel God near. And feel his embrace. And hear his invitation to be his partner in the dance. Father, we thank you for how you've created us and love us and desire a relationship with us and to enter into partnership, invite us us into partnership with you. Help us to see that and to embrace that, that all of our lives and particularly our prayers would be born out of that. That we might see more clearly how you think about us. In the name of Jesus, amen.